Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity once again to come together to pray for one another, to think about your word. We thank you that you are a gracious God who is eager to hear us when we pray, that we can be assured that for those who love you and love your name, that you will turn to us and be gracious to us. So we pray that you would do that this afternoon as we think about your word more and think about prayer, that you would open our minds and hearts to understand your word better and to know better how to call on your name. So hear us and help us, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is my going to be my last Sunday school doing Sunday school on prayer, and then Reverend Tedrick is going to take over the next couple. So this is sort of my last bite at the apple uh, when it comes to prayer. And I thought what we might do for this last section is um, come back to, to a couple questions that have been raised as we've gone along. Uh, so I think as a pastor, whenever the questions come up, you hope to be able that you're answering them well, but off, you know, off the hip, you're not always sure that you like the answer that you gave. Uh, so I wanted to return to two particular questions that were raised. Uh, one that was raised last time, um, sort of on how do we address God in our prayers? How do we think about addressing him? There was that question, you know, if, if a child is praying, you know, dear Jesus, in their prayers, do you, you know, do you correct them? Do you, is, that, is that in any way problematic? Should you... You know, how should we think about how we address God in our prayers? And then also the question uh, that was raised, how do we think about the difference between prayers that we see in the Old Testament and the prayers that we see in the New Testament, how they're sort of different and how we might think about those things? So those were the two questions in particular I wanted to ask. ask. So I thought, um, I thought we could put them in terms of who are we addressing in prayer, Um, and then how do we do that? Right, particularly in light of the fact that Christ has come and that there's a new, new order now after his coming that we're in the last days. Does that affect how we pray? So who are we addressing in our prayers and how are we doing that? I thought it was the, the kind of the two ways we could deal with those questions of why prayers in the Old Testament seem to be a little different than prayers in the New Testament um, so I thought we'd handle those. So first, who are we addressing in prayer? Um, that, that sort of rose from that question. If someone says, "Holy, dear Holy Spirit in their prayer, is that somehow wrong? I think we said last time, no, it's okay to pray to God. We pray to, we recognize the deity is to be prayed to. Uh, but I think we can think through that question a little more helpfully. Um, and uh, Herman Vitzius has a book on the Lord's Prayer. Um, he was a a Reformed scholar, uh, maybe 200 years ago. And he's helpful for kind of thinking about how we go about the Lord's Prayer and kind of analyzing the prayer. And he has some interesting things to say before he gets into the Lord's Prayer about how prayer is operating and how prayer works and how we should think about it. And he says, well, who are we addressing when we pray? Uh, well, we're praying first to God. We should worship God only. Um, he quotes you know, our Lord in Matthew chapter 4.10 to the devil, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And then Vitzius says, to God alone belongs that supreme majesty which we acknowledge and adore in our prayers. Uh, so who are we addressing in our prayers? Well, we're addressing the one true God. Right? Because he alone is worthy to be addressed in prayer. Um, we can think of Jeremiah 10, 6 and 7. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. 
For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Uh, so God is, is deserving of this prayer. He's, there's none like him who deserves this. Um, and Psalm 65, 1 and 2, we read, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear a prayer, to you all flesh shall come. Uh, there's only one God worthy to hear in prayer. There's only one God worth addressing in prayer, and we come to him. Uh, now, we try to come to him learning the, the method that Jesus has taught us, learning from the Lord's Prayer about how to approach our God. Um, and people have asked that question as we asked last time. Does that mean you can only address the Father in prayer? And so we're kind of returning to your question, Faith, a little bit, um, which I think is a really good one. How do we address God? And if we're just addressing the Father, how are we thinking about that? And I like how Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said how we should think about that when we come to God in the Lord's Prayer. He said, here in the Lord's Prayer, only the Father is named. May we not direct our prayers to the Son and the Holy Spirit also. And then he says, though the Father only be named in the Lord's Prayer, yet the other two persons are not excluded. The Father is mentioned because he is first in order, but the Son and the Holy Spirit are included because they are the same essence. As all the three persons subsist in the one Godhead, so in our prayers, though we name but one person, we must pray to all. Um, and so we don't want to be so Trinitarian that we do something that can't be done is break up God into parts and say, well, here I'm really only praying to the Father. You know, he helpfully says we serve one true God who is triune. Oh, that's not right. Not triune. Triune. When we say God is triune, what do we mean? Three and one, right? And one in three. Unity and trinity and trinity and unity is how we say it in the Athanasian Creed. So when we address God, can we address only the Father? And I think Watson is saying, no, you can't separate the Godhead that way. You, when you address the Father, you're necessarily dress, addressing the Son and the Holy Spirit because there is only one true God. Um, and so to, to address one is to address all. This is sort of the mystery of the Trinity, right? Um, this is one of those things where um, I remember a number of years ago my attention being drawn to a statement Calvin makes in meditating on the Trinity. And he said, I was reading Gregory of Nazianzus, so that's even further back, and he says, he was talking about, anytime I contemplate one of the persons of the Trinity, I'm, I become mindful of how big that one person is. And then I become mindful that I'm leaving out two other persons. And so then my mind is immediately brought back to the unity of the three persons to remember that I'm, I'm singling one out. So he says, whenever I think of one, it brings me back to the glory of the, of the, of the one person. I think about the glory of the one God. But then when I think about the glory of the one God, it prompts me to think about how I know that one God in the three persons. So he said, every time I meditate on a person, it brings me back to the unity of God. And every time I meditate on the unity of God, it brings me back to the trinity of God so that I understand who God is. And Calvin says, when I read that, it vastly delights me how he puts it that way. Because isn't that our limitation in thinking about God? We think about one person, and then we realize, oh, but they're 
But as glorious as the Father is, there is the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that leads us to think about the one true God in Trinity. And then that leads us back to think about his unity and then back to think about his Trinity. And so you can't, we kind of have to think of God that way. And so maybe we're getting ourselves too confused. And I like how Watson kind of simplifies it for us and says, there is one true God. And when we pray, we're praying to that one true God. Now, we may pray to the Father as first in order um, because that's how Christ teaches us to think. That's how the, the scriptures reveal the order of the working of the persons and, and how they are presented to us. Um, but in another sense, you can't pray to the Father without praying to the Son, without praying to the Holy Spirit. And so there's a sense in which we should remember our theology when we pray. We believe in one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Um, that when we pray to any one person, we're praying to, to the God who exists. And so when we pray, that helps us then pray to God with a view to his perfections. Um, if we remember the God we're praying to and remember the perfections of our God, that helps us in our prayers to meditate on who God is. Um, this, this is what Vitzia says. As we come to him, we meditate on his perfections as the triune God. And, and what kind of perfections, what do we mean as we meditate on some of the perfections of God? Well, as we come to him, we're, we're reminding ourselves that he alone is all-knowing. Right? He knows what we need. He knows how we come to him. Only he could really hear us when we pray. Um, he's the only God who can really hear us when we pray. Um, he's the only one who knows all things. Um, he, he's the one who can really hear us when we pray, not just in what we say, but can really hear our hearts in prayer. Um, can even know when we're not being 100% honest in our prayers. Can know really what the cry of our heart is. Um, where we can pray silently and he can hear us. Why? Because he's all-knowing. Um, and so we have, a, we have a glorious God to whom we can pray, who knows all things. Um, we have a God that we pray to who is all-powerful. He's able to do all things. He's able to do a lot more than we think he can do. He can actually do far more than what we can imagine. Um, and we, we're praying to that God who is not limited in resources. Um, I love those moments in Scripture where God will, God will say, or His messengers will say, is anything too hard for God? You know, when Abraham and Sarah, we can't have kids, we're 100 years old, we're not going to have kids, okay? That's not going to happen. And, you know, and they say, well, I heard you laughing behind the tent flat. Well, I know I wasn't laughing. You, you laughed, but you see if I don't return next year and then you, you have a child. Is anything too hard for God? Um, that's the God we pray to, for, for whom nothing is too hard. Um, and so we should remember that as one of his perfections when we pray, um, that he is the overflowing fountain and source of all good, that every good and perfect gift comes down to us from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, as James says in James 1.17. We're praying to the God who not only is all-powerful, but is good and is the overflowing source of all good. Right? He overflows in goodness to his people. Um, he's not 
you know, we always have to get in our minds, he's not this closed-fisted God who you're trying to peel back the fingers and get the blessings. Um, I don't know if you ever play that, that game with little children where they're trying to get something out of your hand and you, you're holding on to it. And they're, you know, they're trying their best to peel back your fingers and I do this with my nieces and nephews sometimes to just assert my dominance. No, um, <laughs> I'm stronger than you. No, you know, you sometimes play that game, right, and you can feel their little finger, you know, they're trying with all their might just to pull one of your, you know, that's not what God is. God's not saying, I've got all this good, but I'm, I'm not sure I want to give it to you. Make your case, and I'll see. You know, that's not the kind of God we have. We have the kind of God who is already granting the request before you can get it out of your mouth. Right, when, when, when Daniel is reading the scriptures and realizes the scriptures say that after 70 years in captivity, then if the people turn to God and confess their sins, he'll relent and will come back to the promised land. And Daniel looks at his calendar and says, it's been 70 years, I should pray the prayer of confession so we can go back. And he prays this wonderful prayer of confession, parts of which we've incorporated into our prayer of confession. Um, but he, he's praying this and an angel comes to him and says, as soon as you started praying, I was sent to tell you that the Lord has heard your prayer and that the people are going to be sent back. But I love that because the angel comes saying, you weren't done before the word had gone out to do what you were asking. That's because we don't serve a closed-fisted God. We serve a God who's generous. You know, the picture of our father ought to be the picture of the father greeting the prodigal son. When he sees him a far way off, he runs to greet him. That's meant to be a picture of how our God relates to us. He, he's the overflowing source of all good. He's a generous God. He's a loving God who delights to hear the prayers of his people. Right? Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Um, that's just the Lord's way with those who love him. When we meditate on his perfections, that should inspire us to pray. It should inspire our worship. should inspire our faith. should inspire our hope. should inspire our love. And that's what the name Father is meant to convey to us, right? Um, it, it, it conveys to us the mercies of God, that he is a Father to us. That's why Jesus wants us to think of, of the Father in our prayers. Um, now, not all of us have had perfect fathers who emulate this to us um, in this life. Um, some of us had, and we can be very thankful for that. Um, it's not hard for me when I hear that God is a Father to think of my Father, and to draw that connection. It's hard for some people to do that. But God is what a father should be. God is a father who loves his children, who cares for his children, who gives his children everything good, who doesn't withhold anything unless it's bad for them to have it, um, who knows what's, what's good for us. And that's how God wants us to think of it. Thomas Watson said the name father carries mercy in it. Um, and that's how we're to think of our, our father as a merciful father, um, he's not just our father, but reminding ourselves that he's our father reminds us that he's the best kind of father you could have. Um, so even if you can't make the connection with an earthly father by analogy, you can understand that God is the best kind of father you could have. He has the most experience being a father. He is the ancient of days. He's always been a father. Um, so he has had, never had to learn to be a father. He is a father by his nature. That's who, that's who he is. He's the ancient of days. He's the best father because he's been doing it the longest. Um, he's the best father because he's perfect in every way. Um, he never exasperates his children. Right? Earthly fathers make that mistake. 
they exasperate their children from time to time. God doesn't do that. He's perfect. He's the most wise father you could have. Uh, He knows what to do and how to do it. He's the most loving father you could have. That's what makes him the best father. He's the most rich father you could have. Um, There's no one who has a father who is richer than the heavenly father, who has all riches at his disposal. Um, He has the unsearchable riches of the hinted manna. He has the tree of life. He has rivers of joy. Um, He can give a lot more than any earthly father can give. Um, He's the best father because he can reform his children and make them better. Um, You know, we, we learn in Proverbs that the father and the mother can tell the children how to walk. They can't make them walk it. And it's always a heartache for parents who see their children walking away from the Lord, walking in a way that is not good for them, and how they would love to have be able to reform them and, and have them walk on the way that they should walk, but they don't have that power. The Father has the power to reform his children. He has the power to change us and move us on the path that we ought to walk. That's what makes him the best father. And he's the best father because he never dies. You can lose a good father in this life. Um, we just heard word of our brother losing his father, um, Dan Palmer. You can lose a father no matter how long they live. The father is a father who never dies. God is a perfect father because he never dies. He's always there to be our father. Uh, and that what makes him the best kind of father we could have. And that helps us again to meditate on the father we have as we go before him in prayer. This is who he is for us. The best kind of father that we could have. And then when we meditate on God, we meditate on his trinity and his perfections, who he is as father... Uh, we, we understand that each person of the Trinity does tell us something about who God is. And so we can also pray about the distinctions of the persons. And think about how the particular work of God is revealed to us in each of the distinctions of the persons. Um, and we can meditate on God and, and think about God in that way as well. Um, and so when we talk to God the Father... We're reminded that God the Father is the, is the person of the Trinity who's identified to us as originating the Council of Peace, uh, who made arrangements for adopting us through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will, as Ephesians 1.5 says. So we can think about his, his fatherly work in arranging our salvation as the creator and the sustainer of all things. We can, we can pray to God the Son, recognizing that he's our elder brother, who has reconciled us to God by his death on the cross, who sealed and ratified to us the eternal testament, the covenant of grace. Um, He is our redeemer and savior who has admitted us to being fellow heirs with him for all that is the Father's as our great redeemer God. Uh, We can think of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm drawing all these things from Vitzius, but this is a direct quote. The Holy Spirit, who is the blessed person to whom from first to last the work of regenerating, sanctifying, and comforting our souls must be ascribed. Uh, so when we think particularly about the work that is described to us in Scripture, we can thank the Holy Spirit for his sanctifying work. We can thank the Holy Spirit for his regenerating work. We can thank him for Uh, the work that is particularly ascribed to him, comforting our souls. And we see the Bible doing this from time to time. 
Uh, Think of that blessing we use from the very end of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now God is a gracious God in unity to all of us. He loves us. He loves us. He shows, he brings us into fellowship with him. But we see in that, in that blessing, Paul is ascribing certain things to the individual persons of the Trinity. To think of the Father, to think of God being the loving God. And to think of our Lord Jesus Christ being the gracious God. Um, and to think of the Holy Spirit being the one who creates the fellowship with God, that Paul is, is drawing that attention to the different aspects of the persons of the Trinity in their work and praying and, and blessing those distinctions on the people of God. Uh, John does something similar at the beginning of the book of Revelation, doesn't he? When he says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, uh, or who's coming, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. We wouldn't have time to go through what all of those distinctions signify, but how was the Father presented to us? As the one who is on the throne, but also who was and who is and who's on his way. Um, If you ever wonder why the Bible says he was and is and is to come, and I always say he was and is and is coming, um, it's because of my Greek professor who I remember kind of storming up and down with his Greek music and saying, there's a way to say he is to come in Greek if they wanted to say that. That's not what John wants to say. He wants to say he's coming, he's on his way, he's moving right now. That's how he's presenting himself. I don't know why we do this. So that's why I do it, because I trust his Greek more than mine. Um, but I, and I love, I love that capturing of that sense, right? Not just he is to come, but he's on his way. That's something of what John is communicating with the time is short. So you can think of how is the Father being presented to us by the Apostle John, the one who has always been and who's on his way. Um, and how, are the, how is the Spirit being presented? As the sevenfold Spirit that is before the throne. So sort of doing what, what the commands from the throne are telling him to do. He's the great, the great activator of the work of God in the world. Um, and who is Jesus Christ then in particular? He's the faithful witness. Um, sent from God to witness to his people. He's the firstborn from the dead. Um, the promise of that great harvest of righteousness, harvest of resurrection that's coming with him on the last day. And he's the ruler now of the kings on earth. All of that has tremendous significance. But you'll notice it's ascribed to the different persons so that we can have this vivid picture of the way God works, even just in that word of blessing. To think of, of the distinctions that are active in the Godhead. And that's, that's why I think, I think Calvin's right. I think Gregory was right before him. That it's almost to think of the three is to bring us back to the glory of the one. And, and to think about the one makes us try to understand the glory of the three. Because we can't really wrap our minds entirely around God. And when we think of the glories that are revealed to us of the, in the Father who loved us. Who is this one who is and who was and is to come we recognize that we're still leaving out all the glory of the Son and all the glory of the Spirit. And then we think about that and we think all of that is our one God. We can't understand it. We have to just confess it. But we see the glory of it as we work our way through it. That this is our God. This is the God to whom we can come in prayer. 
who has done all of this for his people and who we are calling on when we come in prayer. That should fill us with a certain amount of boldness in coming before the throne. Boldness in coming to our God who's shown us how much he's loved us. Um, to know how much he's already given for us. Right? That, that encouragement that Paul wants us to take in Romans 8. If he's not withheld his son from you, which is the best thing he has to give, how would he with, withhold anything else? Um, how will he not with him also give you all things? He's already given you the best thing he has. Why would you expect him to hold something back now? Um, the, the son has demonstrated how much he loved you by coming into the world and dying for you. you know, it, it's worth going back and meditating in the Belgian Confession, the article on, on the intercession of Christ. And it, it over and over says, you know, who would love you as much as Christ loves you? Right? Why would you look for another intercessor? Who's shown he loves you more than Jesus? Who came to die for you? Who has ascended to the right hand of the Father? Who, who does the Father love more than Jesus? Who has perfectly done his will? Who's been given the name that's above every name? You know, all of those things are encouraging us to say, you have access to the Father through Christ the mediator. The man, Christ Jesus, who's become our mediator. So we still pray to this, pray to God through all these things, through Christ's mediation. And, and that can be, you know, maybe something of a challenge for us at times because we say, but Christ is God too, right? So we can... We pray to Christ as, as, as the one true God, part of the triune God. Um, I don't even like saying part. He is one of the three right persons in the Trinity. So we pray about his perfections and we understand him as being God, but we also understand that we don't have no access to God except through Christ. So even when we pray to any person of the Trinity, even when we pray the perfections and the distinctions of God, we should always pray through the intercession of Christ. Because it's through Christ that we have access to the one true God. And that's what really makes prayer, prayer. Because whatever else you do, if you're not, if you're not praising and coming to the one true God, through Jesus Christ, you are not coming to God. Um, you know, Luther took it so far as to say, he who seeks to see, in the, see the face of God, but not through Jesus Christ, beholds only the face of the devil. Because how, how do you have access to this God who is so great and who is so glorious? You only have access in the, through the way that Christ has opened. Right? There is no other name given among men by, what, by, by whom you must be saved. And there is no other way to the Father except through him. He's the one who opens access to us in the Father. Um, that's why it's such an important part of the prayer we pray at the end of communion to sort of Glory in the fact that we have been invited into the Holy of Holies through the intercession of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we could do something like that. It's the only way we could enter in and really come before God in that sense is through the access we've been given through the Son. And so however we pray, we always want to recognize that we come through Christ's mediation, that he's the only one who can open the way to the Father for us. Um, and so we are always coming through him. 
That's why we're always praying in Jesus' name. Um, because we're recognizing we have access to the Father through the mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's opened the way for us um, by his sacrifice. So we can think of, of that in a way of addressing God, that we can address God according to his unity, according to his trinity, according to his perfections, the distinctions within the trinity, um, and always then through Christ's mediation. Although he is also the object of worship, he is the mediator through whom we come to God, um, who is both God and man. So who are we addressing? We can think of it that way. Maybe that makes it a little more technically accurate than my answer last time. So any questions about that? Sure. Yeah, I, so the question is, is it means, why do they think of it as a means of grace? Um, yeah, I, I, you, can, you can define means of grace, we would say, more broadly or more narrowly. So I think we would just tend to say we're defining it a little more narrowly as the places where God has promised to work through them for grace. So we see more the word preached coming from God, the sacraments coming from God, but prayer being actually what we raise to God. So that's why we're making that more narrow distinction. Presbyterians are just talking more broadly, I think. So I don't know that there's really that much of a distinction because we also say God will grant his grace only to those who without ceasing ask for it. Um, his grace and Holy Spirit to those who without ceasing ask for it. So we're not making that big a difference by saying that's how God's grace, but we're, we're just distinguishing the things where God is promising to work and the, and the way we're asking these things. But I think it is technically pretty close. I think we're just being a little more narrow in our definition. Um, where God has promised to work, work or confirm faith um, is technically in the preach word and in the sacrament. That's how we would define it more narrowly. So I think we're just making a little bit of a... Because you could say more broadly, everything's a means of grace that we do in worship, right? That hearing the call to worship is a means of grace. Hearing the blessing is a means of grace. That we could, we could broaden it. So I think we just have a little bit more of a narrow definition. Right. That's what we were saying. We would say this is a means through which God has promised to work. And that he's speaking in the word. He's speaking in the sacrament. Yeah. Or whereas prayer, we're speaking to God. Yeah, Dan. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to why I think uh, that's my next, my next one I want to kind of get into, why are our prayers a little different in the New Testament than the Old. I think he kind of gets into some of that a little bit. But um, I thought maybe one example of, there's a, there's a prayer I use in funerals often that kind of shows us this, this pattern of, I didn't write the prayer, um, but it shows us this pattern of praying both to the, the distinctions in the Trinity and to the triune God. It's a prayer that says this, Heavenly Father, our creator and sustainer, in whose presence there is no darkness and no death, we worship and adore you, the living God. So that's directing to the distinction of the Father. Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life, who tasted death for everyone and who brought life and immortality to light, we praise your name for victory over death and the grave. Holy Spirit, author and giver of life, comforter of those who sorrow, we praise your name for the light and hope of your presence within our hearts. Before you, holy and triune God, we offer our worship and adoration, even in the face of death and of the grave. 
Speak to us once more that solemn message of life and death. See our tears and hear our cries and lead us all as pilgrims through this valley of the shadow of death into the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So you see praying those distinctions and then praying to the triune God um, who, who we believe in. So we, we see the distinctions and the unity in the prayer there. Um, <clears throat> then the question is, well, how did the Old Testament saints address God and how do we see this uh, differently in our prayers um, well, we have to first understand that we're living in a different time, right? We're living in a different dispensation because we live in the day, don't get thrown off by that word, it's okay. Um, we're living in the time after Christ has come, right? That there's something significant happened in the death of Christ on the cross. That when he died, he said, it's finished. And what he meant was, everything that has come before is over. The scriptures are finished. Uh, the scriptures were finished in his death. So he was signaling in his death that that was the end of the beginning. Uh, that there was a new era coming and with his resurrection he's inaugurated those last days. So one way to think of it is that his death was the end of the beginning and his resurrection is the beginning of the end. Um, because it's his resurrection that's going to be carried forward then to the day of our resurrection and the renewal of the whole world to be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So his death is the end of the beginning and his, and his resurrection is the beginning of the end. Um, there, there's, a whole, there's a whole change that's occurred with what, what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so things have been radically changed and living in these last days makes a huge difference. Right? Um, that's how the, the writer of Hebrews begins, however you remember it, the King James Version or, or a different version. You know, in many times in diverse ways, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Something different has happened in these last days. And really, the thing that's happened is what we used, what the Old Testament saints saw through a, through a glass darkly, we have seen face to face in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So what they understood in a limited foreshadowing way, we understand in more fullness. And that kind of helps us understand what is the difference between the way they prayed and the way we prayed. Uh, we pray with more clarity um, because we live this side of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and his revelation. Uh, having these things now revealed in these last days by the Son makes them more clear than they ever were before. Um, and that's, I think, what... So Samuel Miller in his book, Thoughts on Public Prayer, who was a, a Presbyterian minister um, involved in Old Princeton Seminary, he says this of, Old Testament, of New Testament prayers. It says, the aspect of prayer under the New Testament dispensation is marked with greatly increased light, elevation, and enlargement. We find the glorious truths and hopes of the gospel exhibited no longer through a glass darkly, but with open face. Instead of teaching by types and shadows and carnal ordinances, everything under this New Testament economy appears more simple more spiritual, and more divested of external formality. Surely nothing less and nothing different from this could have been expected under a dispensation in which life and immortality were brought to full light and in which the infancy of the church had given place to the perfect manhood in Christ Jesus. Under this dispensation, of course, we find prayer assuming a language and a tone of more light 
enlargement, liberty, and filial confidence. Um, now, why does he say that? Right, I'm not just going to read that and expect you to, okay, go, go home. Um, what, what is he really saying there? He's saying they, had, they only understood things in terms of the Old Testament forms in which they'd been given. So when they thought of the blessing that was going to come on the earth through Messiah, they thought of it in Israelite terms. They thought of it as the king of our people. They thought of it as the blessing of our land. They thought of it as the perfection of our temple worship. They thought of it in in all of those ways they'd been taught to think of the kingdom of God. That was because that was the era they lived in. The kingdom of God was Israel. It was expressed in terms of the worship of the nation. There was no meaningful difference between being in the church and in the nation. That's, that's how they were taught through those forms. But what were those forms all meaning to do? It was point them to something greater. And so even though they thought in those terms, you are a God who has always rescued our people. You are a God who has always intervened on behalf of our kingdom. You are the God who is always going to bless us with all of the blessings we need. So with prosperous harvests and protection from enemies. All of those things that they understood, they were types of realities that were going to come. They were foreshadowing something greater. Um, not a kingdom that spanned a small little geographic area in Palestine, but a kingdom that expanded to the ends of the earth. Right? Not a king who just ruled in David's throne in Jerusalem, but a king who ruled over heaven and earth. Right? Who, who was ruler not just in earthly Jerusalem, in a local kingdom, but who ruled in the heavenly Jerusalem, of which the earthly Jerusalem was only a picture. But they, they, they understood that darkly. Right? They understood that in part. Even the disciples have that kind of trouble of seeing how... Are you going to restore Israel now? Is, is the kingdom now going to be restored? Because you're leaving and it seems like that should be the time for this. They're still thinking in those types. But once they get to the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, he shows them this was talking about something even broader and bigger. Um, this, he was talking about something that was bigger than Israel, that was larger than this country or this ethnic people, that actually spans to the end of the earth. They pray with more liberty now, with more confidence, having had Jesus revealed to them as Savior. And so it doesn't go back to the Old Testament types and shadows. It recognizes the exodus from Egypt was a shadow of the exodus from slavery to sin and death and hell. Passing over the Red Sea was a picture of the salvation that Jesus works by his death on the cross. Passing into the promised land is a picture of what Jesus has now opened to us by his death. And so going back to those forms is going back to the lesser thing. And so this this pastor, I think, rightly is saying, that's why the New Testament prayers look different, because they live in a lighter time where more has been revealed. They live in a time of greater liberty under the gospel, not constrained anymore by the types and shadows of the old covenant. The promises are all larger to them than they were before. Uh, not limited to Israel, Israel you know, geographically or ethnically, but now to the ends of the earth and to Jew and Gentile alike. Um, and it's because all of those things get enlarged, it completely changes everything. And he says that's why they don't pray the old way, because the new covenant is so much bigger, so much more clear, so much more glorious. Why would they still pray the way they used to pray? 
um, there, there's a whole new light that's been opened up on them now, um, and there's more filial confidence. There's more confidence now that we are God's children and have access to him through Jesus Christ. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a way of thinking, how do we, how do, we do this? How do we, how do we pray to God? And why, why don't we use the exact same forms we used to use? It's because the promises have all been revealed. Um, all those types and shadows have been fulfilled. And you don't go, and Hebrews' whole point is you don't go back to the types and shadows when the reality has come. Uh, the, the picture I always think of is my, my, my mom was born when my grandfather was a prisoner of war in World War II. And so she didn't meet him until she was like two and a half. And they'd always showed her a picture of my grandfather and said, this is your dad. And when he finally came back from war, they said, here's your dad. And she ran to get the picture and she said, no, this is my dad. Um, and they said, well, no, 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 that's a picture of your dad. Here he is, right? And, and just like we don't want to be like, like the little children, right, running back to the picture and saying, no, here he is. No, something better has come. Here he is in the flesh. Here he is in, in three-dimensional reality. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You don't go back to the temple and you don't, the sacrifices and all those things. They were pictures of Jesus who was coming. He's here now. You don't go back to that. And I think some of that is happening in our prayers as well. Well, we're over our time a little bit, so I'm gonna, I'll close in prayer and then uh, we'll go. Father in heaven, thank you for this day and the many blessings you've given to us. Thank you for the access we have to come before your throne of grace. Thank you for, in these last days, enlightening us to the realities that are signified in Christ, that the types and shadows have been fulfilled in him. And thank you that that helps us to come to greater understanding of your, of your kingdom and its promises and of the king himself. So thank you for the light you've shined us on us in these last days. And hear our prayers, Lord, because we offer them in Jesus' name.